Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more, right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. My name is uh, Nicholas Taiwan Nguyen. I'm the Public Disclosure Officer at the NATO Archives. What that basically means is I coordinate the declassification and public disclosure of NATO information for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. I ask most of my guests these days, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? Well, that's an interesting question because I thought about this before uh, coming to speak with you. And for me, I think that's a loaded question. What does it mean to be Vietnamese for me? I think in, for me, that my answer is probably rooted in a specific you know, experience. Uh, and a moment in time. Um, being Vietnamese, for me, uh, having kind of, let's say, ex- uh, experienced um, leaving Vietnam, having been, uh, let's say, uh, kind of partial, you know, being, uh, I don't want to say an eyewitness, but, you know, being a, being a, a result of, you know, one of the major uh, historical events of the 20th century, um, learning about it uh, in several ways in popular culture, through oral histories, through world history, through international history, um, positioning myself with that knowledge and learning about myself in relation to my heritage, my Vietnamese heritage has, you know, I think it's, a, it's, uh, it's been, it's very much informed uh, by that. Um, I find myself in a you know, in terms of being Vietnamese, it's it's changed over time. It has evolved um, with my growing understanding of where I, not only I stand uh, in relation to Vietnam, but where Vietnam stands in relation to the 20th century. So it's 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 an evolving question. It's, it's very important to me, and I think it's my Vietnamese identity. You know, it's always been there, but it's it's been it's needed to be excavated. It's needed to be explored. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I understand you asked that question of all your guests, and I'm sure the answers are going to be extremely different, basically, especially at a generational level. Um, and, and for me, I guess I'm, I find myself almost in between the generations. I'm a first wave, I'm a refugee, but born and raised in North America. Um, so I'm very much 
you know, on two ends of that spectrum, right? Uh, I have, yeah. I, I take with me the traditions of a previous generation of, of uh, and living it, but transposed to a different environment and watching that, watching those traditions both evolve and, um, and perpetuate and circulate and, uh, and still at the same time being rooted in the past, but at the, but, uh, you know, kind of, uh, moving, you know, mutating towards something else as, uh, you know, as the children, you know, as, as our children and our children's children's pass it along, um, and how they change from, let's say over here where we are versus how they kind of mutated back home. And what does home mean? And then these are these are questions that uh, I think have dominated uh, my life, you know, and as they change, they're always rooted back to my Vietnamese identity. There's a lot to unpack there, and hopefully we'll do that uh, in this episode. Um, how did your family resettle after 1975? Well, we left, uh, we left Vietnam. We left Saigon, actually, on April 29th, 1975. Okay, so... My father was a helicopter pilot for the Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese Army, and he actually uh, flew us out uh, the day before the war ended. We landed on the USS Hancock, um, and we ended up, you know, uh, uh, you know, after landing on the Hancock, we were we went to Guam, and then from Guam we went to Camp Pendleton, and then from Camp Pendleton we ended up uh, going to Canada. Our first stop in Canada was Regina, Saskatchewan. We stayed there for three months, and then we ended up moving uh, westwards to Calgary, Alberta, and that's where my parents really kind of put some roots down, where uh, my my where we grew up, me and my brother. My brother's two years younger than I am, and that's where we basically settled until I, you know, until I left for university. So my entire childhood was in uh, was spent in Calgary, Alberta. I understand your father, uh, there's a significance to your father's story in the uh, visual history of, of um, the Vietnam War. Can you um, go into that? Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think this, this is part of been, this is part of like, uh, has really, really shaped and informed, you know, like, uh, how I think about myself as Vietnamese, um, and my relationship to history with a capital H. Um, so my when I when I say that my father was a helicopter pilot and he flew us out of Vietnam, there's an image um, that was taken, uh, a very famous image. The photographer was Nick Wheeler. Uh, it was taken uh, on the do on, on the dock of the USS Hancock. It's an aircraft carrier. It was published in uh, the May 12th um, issue of Newsweek magazine. And there they were reporting about the you know the evacuation of uh, uh, Saigon and the eventual uh, migration of everybody uh, you know, who, are, who, who left and then uh, relocated to the States. The issue is called the New Americans. And the, the photo, there's a photo, the Nick Wheeler's photo has, a photo has an image, it's a very iconic image of a Huey, a Bell Huey helicopter being dumped off the dock of the USS Hancock and the helicopter is perpendicular to the hull. And uh, it's captured uh, just as it's just as it's dumped and it's perpendicular. And the serial number on the helicopter is nine five nine. That image has also been shown in uh, as as uh, news footage. Uh, I've seen it uh, being used 
in many uh, documentaries. It was recently shown in the Ken Burns uh, Vietnam documentary. It's shown at the end of The Deer Hunter uh, in a news clip there of archival news footage. Uh, it's in the, it's, you, it's also used in um, Eugene Jericke's uh, documentary, Why We Fight. Um, the reason why, you know, that uh, image is so powerful is because it's my father's helicopter. Um, and so when my father recognized that helicopter, we and we I saw it in that magazine, you know that it's been burned in my mind, right? Uh, too much, so much so that the fact that you know the Huey is to me one of the most beautiful flying, <laughs> flying machines ever to grace the skies, right? There's something about it, right? And then there's uh, you know I think obviously um, you know uh, Hollywood cinema has uh, you know it's the the Huey has really kind of has is an emblematic and iconic image of the Vietnam War. Right, uh, the helicopter war. Right, uh, you know, and it's hard to not to think when you see, you know, apocalypse now and the attack on the village. That you know, all the all, all the heroes coming in. Right, it's just like, it's the immediate image. You think no, no other aircraft, even though there are many other aircraft involved in the war. The Huey is the Huey is uh, iconic, and for me to have that personal relationship to that image, um, you know, and uh, to know that it was, you know, my father's. Um, helicopter that photo for me as much as it captures you know like to think that oh i not only when i see that photo i'm in that i was on that helicopter i was on that ship but what is the story behind it and, and i think a lot of my life a lot of my life has been spent trying to understand the context of that photo what's the story behind that image what you know like why is it you know what you know it's obvious what the allure is but there's a whole you know, there's this whole context behind that photo that basically informs every day where I am, what am I doing, and how did I get here? Yeah, that visual attachment that you had, um, or you have with that that Huey, and um, it makes me think of the generations that come much later. There really isn't a whole lot to bind the younger generation to this previous culture. I mean, you left when you were what, three, three years old, Yeah, three years old. And you have this strong attachment to that image because you were, you were inside of that helicopter and now it's going overboard and there's so much representation in what that even means. The work that you do today, um, might be seated. I mean, when I think about it, it's like, you know, it has roots and the things that we are part of even before we know that we're part of them. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know sometimes whether I think, you know, like my career and like, again, working in a place like the Naval Archives and just in archives in general and field of archives. Right. I mean, this is this is this is memory work. Right. I work for memory institutions. Right. I'm in the memory industry. Um, and yet for me, when I see that photo, uh, like I said, I'm only three years old. I see the photo. I'm told, you know, like I'm told I've uh, been told through oral histories that, yes, I was there. I'm, you know, like everything about that photo suggests my presence, you know, outside of the frame of, the, of that photo. But because of my relative youth, I mean, I'm only three years old. I don't yeah. have any actual concrete memories of it. And, you know, it's, I always walk around saying that it's my one great regret, right? And I tell the, and I tell the story of the escape so much because I reconstructed it. You know, I've asked my parents, I've asked my family, I've asked everybody, I've done, I've done research, uh, uh, you know, like trying to find, you know, the evidence and the facts around the landing and the day, you know, and trying to understand the day and everything like that. 
because I don't have that memory. I'm reconstructing it. Uh, and, you know, that gap, you know, it's just like there's a gap that I feel like, you know, like I'm wanting to fill. Right. And sometimes I kind of think, you know, whether it's, you know, some kind of cosmic destiny or a happy yeah. accident or whatever. But my eventual, let's say, place, you know, like my, you know, like I get what I do, you know, what I and even inform on my interests, my 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 take on a lot of things, you know, that kind of historical context bit, right? It sometimes feels like, you know, that's kind of what I'm I'm trying to do. I've been driven to do this, like to fill in these gaps, fill in this hole, right? Uh, there's a hole that I want to make or at least make understandable to myself, right? It's like this lifelong quest, you know because this monumental event happened and I don't have any memory of it. Right, right. How, speaking of reconstruction, uh, what did your father do after he um, arrived in Calgary? Yeah, so what happened was we, when we landed, when we, we, when we landed in the U.S., uh, our first, we were basically at um, Camp Pendleton, you know, and uh, I think you've you've even got a personal history to that. You made a you were you mentioned that you were a production assistant on Tony Bowie's film about Camp Pendleton, so you've probably had some uh, you know you've done your own research I think on Camp Pendleton, right? And same with me. I mean, like I have very again I have memories of Camp Pendleton, but I always question their let's say their actual the reality. Right. And I was right? stationed I there for for about a month too. Ah, okay. So I mean, I have photos. I have photos of us there. I hear the stories, um, and again, the memories that play in my head, these movies that I have in my head about it, you know, again, I, whether they're actual or imagined right. is, 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 is always be, going to be contested. But, you know, I've, I couldn't have, you know, we've, we stayed there for, you know, several months waiting to be relocated. And how we ended up being in Canada was that my mother, my mother, she had a sister who was, you know, her sister actually was living in Canada at the time. She was married to uh, a Vietnamese, uh, a Vietnamese man who had been educated um, in the French system, and he had been teaching uh, in, let's say, francophone um, countries. So at first he was in, uh, I think he was in African Zaire, and then he ended up teaching in Quebec. He was in Trois Rivières. And so there was a link there. They're like, oh, okay, you, you know, during the whole relocation process, they're like, oh, okay, you've got family in Canada, you know, and Canada was, you know, again, you know, open to receiving refugees at the time. And that just seemed like, well, if you have a family link there, then that might be, you know, like that might be an easy kind of base to kind of, you know, start your new life type of thing. But none of us spoke French well enough to live in Quebec. Um, so, but Canada was still the place to go. And I think my father has ex had expressed, you know, let's say some disillusionment or discontentment about how, you know, like how it all fell down with the Americans at the end while following 1973. And, uh, you know, the, just the general attitude, uh, at least from a political um, perspective. And so he, he didn't feel comfortable staying in the States. He was happy to, you know, he was happy to take us to Canada. So, you know, instead of, you know, we had my mother's brothers with us and not, they neither spoke English nor French uh, very well. So we ended up basically, instead of going to Quebec, we went to Regina, Saskatchewan, which is smack in the middle of uh, Canada. And there's not much there, right? So it was pretty much, a, you know, let's say a civil repopulation kind of, uh, you know, kind of project, right? And so we ended up going there, and we got welcomed by a church group. I remember, I remember being welcomed as, you know, like uh, the, you know, the new members of the community, 
very nice people kind of welcomed us, put clothes on us, uh, sheltered us, and kind of helped us get going. But very quickly, I think my father noticed that there wasn't a lot of opportunities other than, you know, let's say secondary or tertiary kind of industry. Um, and so with his helicopter network, you know, of a lot of his buddies, he ended up finding out that, uh, you know, several of them had found their way to Calgary. Uh, and then Calgary, Alberta at the time is a, you know, and still is a very natural resource uh, kind of in, uh, focused industry, industrial uh, town. And that's, you know, it was easy to bring helicopter pilots there because they would need to supply um, supplies or other things to remote locations where the mines were up north. And so it sounded, you know, okay, well, that sounds fine to me. Let's, let's try this. There's up more, sounds like there's more opportunity there than there is here. So after three months, we all moved out west to Calgary. And so once he was in Calgary, he realized that, oh, some of these helicopter jobs, they're, uh, you know, they're pretty long hours and they take me away from my family. And I can't really leave my family because, you know, neither, they can't really get on by themselves. Right. You know, and I don't really feel like living in a remote community up north where there's nothing, right? Uh, even though the pay would be good. And I think also he, he, he also realized that given his training, um, he, you know, flying helicopters, you know, even, even in, the theater, in the theater of war, he was not trained to fly in harsh environments like the North, like Northern Canada, right? Where it's very cold. And so the physics are different, right? Like understanding the weather you know, the conditions and its effect on the blades and, you know, like how you handle yeah. that stuff. So he, he was just like, no, this, this doesn't sound, this doesn't, this isn't uh, the right decision to make. So, you know, we, we, we still settled in Cal in Calgary. He ended up, uh, you know, uh, working night jobs and then going to school at the same time. And then he ended up getting um, a degree in geophysics. Wow. Um, and then made his way up and then ended up working in that industry, again, in the natural resource industry, you know. Um, so, yeah, geophysics, geophysics was his, um, his area of study. And meanwhile, my mother was working, you know, uh, retail jobs um, and teaching. She ended up getting into teaching. But one of the things that my parents did in Vietnam was that, sorry, in Calgary, was that there was quite a collection, a large collection of Vietnamese that started to come to Calgary, that, that were in Calgary, you know. Um, and so they ended up playing a large role in the Calgary Vietnamese Association. And so, you know, like... Um, bringing together the community, you know, and my father was played much more of that kind of administrative kind of like a, you know, leader. He was the, he was a captain of a squadron. So he's, he, I think he had, he was used to leading or being seen to lead, um, you know, or expected to lead, you know, groups of people. Right. And he had some kind of, you know, he had the understanding of how to do that. And so a lot, you know, having places for, you know, Vietnamese to gather, to celebrate, you know, our, our traditions like that, you know, like the, right. you know, the New Year's, that was an important festival, right? I remember, I remember early on, we would celebrate it. Oh, we were able to rent it, you know, uh, like a gym in a local high school on the weekend. And then that's where, you know, like we would have the uh, variety shows, right? Where you're right. singing and eating and comedy sketches and all that stuff just to celebrate, you know. And again, it was like, it was a way, especially for, you know, again, if you've just been uprooted, and you're living in a place where you yeah. have no idea what the hell's going on. It's easy to get together and do something that reminds you of home um, and reminds you of who you are, 
right? So a lot of these, a lot of a lot of my childhood memories are rooted in in these experiences, right? Like not really understanding, but being a part of it, being in the middle of the action because my parents were so involved in it. You know, my father uh, on the, if you want to call it the administrative end, and my mother on the social graces end, right? She was a singer, she was a performer. Um, and so they worked really well together, you know, both in front of the stage and in, uh, behind the stage. So, I mean, like, I was always surrounded, you know, I, mean, you know, I was always in the meetings, you know, we, we were brought to meetings, we were brought to rehearsals. Yeah. And so we were really in the thick of, you know, this kind of growing Vietnamese community. Right. And, and it was a young, it was a young community, right? I mean, think if we think about it, um, many of them probably they're in the mid, you know, mid twenties to this is the twenty-five to thirty-five age range, right? You know, with you know again a couple a couple seniors, but I think that would be the core, right? And so some people are, you know, like they need to help looking for jobs, they need to find, you know, trying to settle, find a new house, you know, lots of things, right? So coming together, I think, um, you know, and, and forming this association. And then legitimizing it with, you know, by with its official connections to the city, right, where we get funding from the city and being recognized by the city as an official group that, you know, again, we, you know, by the time the uh, the, the city rec officially recognized our Tet celebrations as something, you know, worthwhile, not only to, you know, like to give grants to or funds to, but also have, you know, political uh, leaders come and kind of, you know, give it its blessing. You know, this experience that you have sounds very different from the Vietnamese American experience. I maybe it's just because I haven't talked to enough people, mm -hmm. but I don't recall the American uh, communities sort of getting that actively behind uh, these growing Vietnamese communities throughout the United States. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, like having where I like, I'm actually, I'm, I've been living in Europe now for the last 12 years um, since I arrived in 2009. And one of the, you know, and, you know, in France, for example, especially in Paris, there's a substantial Vietnamese population, right? I mean, like it's been historic. It's always been. There. But what's interesting that I found um, is that, you know, similar to what you're saying, that, that experience doesn't exist either there. And I was told that by, you know, you know, like several Vietnamese people, uh, you know, generation older than I am. Yeah. Like, they actually said, community, Vietnamese community, there's no such thing here, right? Not in, the, not in that way, not in the way, for example, that I experienced, right? And that's one of the, and then, you know, that kind of woke me myself up to, you know, and again, it, I think it, it um, it speaks to your question, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? Well, what does it mean to be Vietnamese for me it means something completely different totally. in terms of somebody, you know, my age, even growing up in, you know, someplace like Paris or someplace like, you know, San Jose or something like that. Right. Um, I'm feel, I feel very fortunate um, in the sense that how I grew up um, and the circumstances of my upbringing, you know, um, in terms of like not feeling, not being isolated, you know, being, you know, my parents being very active in bringing people together and helping people um, and seeing how, you know, years later, how a lot of that work, a lot of that groundwork that uh, they paid put, off you know, and all the time, the blood, sweat and tears that they put in mm -hmm. as, you know, let's say, pay, you know, how it's paid forward for them, for them years later in their life. Right. Uh, it's to see that living example of, wow, you know, like they're, you know, like 
they actually, you know, they did something about it and it's, it wasn't for them, but it has given back to them, you know, as, you know, and, uh, uh, in their senior years, right? Uh, that help, that help that they gave people. Because uh, I remember this revolving door of constant, you know, like people mm-hmm. meeting new people, uh, you know, friends. Uh, you know, I thought I thought I had the biggest family in the world, right? Because of the way we right. we refer to, you know, um, people, you know, like the Chu and the Ko, and you know, like I always thought that these were my uncles, and, like my actual uncles and aunts that I was meeting. Whereas, no, 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 there were just people coming into our lives, uh, you know, uh, getting started and then moving onwards and then kind of growing on their own. And seeing them come back to say and show their gratitude to my parents has been extremely eye-opening and, uh, and informing. And it, it has certainly had a great effect on both me, my brother and I. There's no question. As you were growing up uh, in Calgary, what did you envision yourself becoming? You got me. I mean... I, I mean, I'll be completely honest. I mean, I had no idea. I had never had any idea about what I wanted to do. I knew what I was good at in the sense that I knew, I knew what I was able to, you know, I was able to, you know, I was uh, acknowledged as being, oh, okay, good at math, you know, like the classic, you know, tiger example, right? Uh, yeah. You know, like, oh, he's, you know, like good at math, good at physics. He's going to be one of those, you know, like the path that, you know, it was almost like that classic first, uh, first wave immigrant kind of, uh, you know, kind of path, right? Like, oh, you're going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer type of thing, right? And so I honestly didn't know what I wanted to be, right? I just kind of, I was just happy being, I was just happy being. And when the time came to actually kind of, you know, take the next step, right? So, okay, high school's over, you know, what next? Oh, well, I got to study to be something now as opposed to just study, okay? So I had no idea. you know, and so my father had guided me towards what seemed to be a good idea, which was um, uh, engineering, because it matched what, you know, I would, my, my grades, if you want, right? I was able to do that, even though my interests were much more in the kind of uh, arts and humanities and the social sciences, right? right but but I, I was, it was hard for me to understand, like, oh, this is what I like to do versus what I have to study. Right. I hadn't made that I hadn't made that connection yet that you, you could you, you could actually do both. Right. I thought one was pleasure, one was work. Right. And I didn't yeah. realize that one would professionalize one's pleasures. And but I think in those days, in the the generations of yours, I'm a little bit behind you, but well, probably the same generation where we were worried about surviving. We really exactly. were worried about making the money and our parents were and we didn't. I don't. I think we were so close to that worry and that sort of that pressure that we didn't think that we could do professions outside of the basics. I think so. I agree with that. I mean, I think part of the, you know, and I think it still permeates, uh, you know, like part a lot of my parents thinking, right? You know, it's just like, oh, you got to save, you know, so you know, you always got to plan. Their experiences, you know, especially, you know, you know, basically at, you know, at our age was yeah. constantly thinking about the future of their children because it was always in question, right? Because they were they were still constantly kind of building and building and looking out for us, right? And making sure like, you know, that's part of that's part of what being, you know, if you want to call it Vietnamese is all about, right? That this Vietnamese experience that we have uh, you know, that we have been historically been, you know, in, shaped by, right? It's and, just kind of like and building towards the future. And saving. it's also part of being on the outside of the community on the outside of mainstream that you're like because if you think about our kids 
now it doesn't matter if they're in europe for you especially if they're in europe or if they're in, you know my kids are half taiwanese half vietnamese if they're in taiwan vietnam somewhere in europe or canada australia i think my kids would be able to go anywhere now because mm -hmm. they're on the inside of wherever they need to go they're they're part of you know this english speaking body um so they're inside they're not left on the outside so you're not worried that they're going to survive whereas i think our parents were so on the outside coming to these new countries that oh, they had a lot of worry about it right oh for sure for sure and i think there's still there and i think it's still always there right i mean like okay even if i move to europe and they're like okay still worry right like oh is everything okay have you fit, are you fitting in right i mean like the, that question of fitting in uh, mm. you know whether you going are going to blend in or melt in or you know how are you going to do it right i mean i think they had a harder time there's no question i believe that our our parents generation had a harder time kind of coming in because because of the circumstances the immediate circumstances of their existence and their arrival right like oh you're one of them boat people right yeah um you came here that way right um you're part of the war right and and for me and growing up and especially i think our generation you know growing up to be you know um growing up with other you know like always being you know outside of our family this is where the outs you know this business of being outside always having told what being vietnamese was through popular culture right as especially american popular culture was making sense of everything about about their relationship with vietnam you know how we would see it you know either in the movies or on tv or in books it was just like they're americans coming to terms um, and that's the dominant narrative that we've always kind of had to deal with, right? I remember growing up and every, any Vietnam War film that came up, you know, I'd look to my dad and he's like, you know, like, that's their, that's their perspective, right? Like, and again, it's always, and, you know, it's like, you know, I remember his law, his big question, when is there ever going to be, you know, the perspective, you know, film that's just going to show our perspective? And for me, I was like, okay, when I think back about it, what does he mean by our? Who is our? Right? Your does he mean his perspective? Does he mean South Vietnam's perspective? Does it mean does he mean the people who, you know the Viet Q, the people who left, you know, and are looking back at it, you know, or the people who stayed and are looking out, or the you know the winners, you know, the yeah. ones who decided to rename, you know, I was born, you know, I was born in a city that you know officially doesn't exist, even though it still exists in the minds and the language of everybody who you know. It's called Ho Chi Minh City, but everyone still calls it Saigon. And I'm curious to see at what point is it no longer going to be called Saigon. Nick, can I introduce, in, in, um, interrupt you? Mm -hmm. I had a conversation just, just recently about that very thing, Nick. Who are we supposed to root for when there's a country, our country, a country called Vietnam that goes to the World Cup and wins it mm -hmm. or just gets into semifinals? What flag do we root for now? Oh, for sure. I mean, like, there's again, and then I think this goes back to your question about what does it mean to be Vietnamese, right? I mean, like, is it, you know, what does it mean to be Vietnamese, are, like, in terms of, a, let's say, a political identity or an historical identity or, you know, or just even a, like a cultural identity? I mean, like, it's always, it's a complex, it's an extremely complex question. And I think it's even more complex, especially for us. Right, it may be less complex for, let's say, people who are living now. Right, like my cousins who were born after the war, who have been born and raised, and living in like just outside of Hanoi in a, in a city called Taiping, 
I, th I think their identity is pretty pretty straightforward. It's set, right? yeah. No question, you know. The past is the past, and they don't really, you know, it's just like it's, be it's before them, right? Um, it's one of the interesting things, when, you know, when, whenever I've gone back, you know, like, and I've even asked my father because, you know, there were moments where, because, you know, like, again, given his personal history, he was born in the North, but he was raised in the South. He was separated from his family, his birth family. Um, and his, the rest of his family, they were foot soldiers, you know, for, for the, you know, for, for, for North, you know, the North Vietnamese wow. Army. And he's a pilot for the South Vietnamese Army. Right. So I was like, well, how do you when you finally get together, how do you reconcile this stuff? And he's like, well, we don't talk politics. What's the point? You know, like, what's the point of dredging that stuff up? Right. We're family. Right. And it's there. It's the elephant in the room. But after everything that's happened, we now find ourselves face to face after all this time. Let's just focus on the, you know, what we've what we've lost as opposed to, you know, fighting battles that have already been fought. Right. So but, it took me a while to understand that because it's like, but not always be like, but, 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 you know, because we always think about things like wars in terms of winners and losers. Right. But, you know, there's an argument to say that, well, in this war, really, you know, like politically, fine. There may, there, where there was a winner. But what did it cost families? Right. Every family lost in, 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 if you want to talk about a certain kind of way. So how does, you know, let's talk, let's figure out. And I think what I ultimately, when my father, was trying to get at it was just like you know let's try to heal stuff right i mean like there's no point there's no point like getting into these endless political arguments that really well you know, you know if if i was to ask you that i wanted an i know it's not this cut and uh, this dry and clear and mm -hmm. if i wanted an instruction manual for my children to root for a team mm -hmm. that's going to go to the world cup what what do we say? What do at this point in our history, parents like you and me, what do we say to our children? Yeah, good you know, like home I think for people like we have for people like us, home we have several homes, several ideas of home, right? Who we root for, right? I mean like you know, like I'd say for example, you're you know, like here's a good example. My kids, they have Canadian citizenship, they have French citizenship, but they're born and raised in Belgium, right? When it comes to the World Cup, and when it comes to the football tournament, especially that's going on right now, the Euro Cup, they're Belgian fans. No, mm. no, no problem. Like, it's you know, and I don't have. That's not coming anything from me. That's their choice, right? Yeah. And because it's their world, right? And one of the things I've noticed, you know, and I think about being a father, um, and perhaps you'll see it, you know, like you've experienced it to some degree, is like, you know as they grow up and you know they start to you know their world is what they construct right and what they want to add to it becomes based is based on their curiosity right and that's pretty much what happened to me you know like i have this you know like i came from a world that no longer exists i'm trying to reconstruct it in my own way right i'm you know like with my constant uh, re uh, re you know re re uh, research and revisitations of the past right it's just kind of like this is a world that has vanished uh, you know, the web has, you know, being the internet has has certainly facilitated, you know, like uh, the circulation of like tons and tons of fantastic images of, you know, a Vietnam that is lost to us that we never knew, right? That this is the Vietnam of my, our parents, of our grandparents, right? We have that ability to look back and, uh, you know, and, and, and see, you know, like, wow, this and then and in a, in a certain kind of way, we have the knowledge to actually put it 
put it into context, right? Like, yes, this was a time and a place. This is how my parents, this is how our, our parents, our, the previous generations grew up. This is what we left. This is what they built. This is what's happened since, right? We have, we have you know, being diasporic, we have this kind of globalized, detached view of things. And this is what I think this gets to some of the points you're getting about being outside of it. We're outside yeah. of, we have, and being outside of it, you have that privilege if you, if you want to take advantage of it. You have that privileged perspective of being critically detached to be able to get a more global sense and therefore make things a lot more complex as opposed to binary, binaristic, winners or losers, you know? Um, it makes things more complicated, right? Um, and therefore more rich, right? Um, and so it's not easy to answer some of these questions. It becomes a, I think it becomes a lifelong conversation, a lifelong dialogue, right? That, and you know, I, that's, that's, that's certainly the case for me, right? I mean, like, I haven't stopped, you know, learning or asking about, you know, the context of that photo right what and what led to it right and the light you know and the universes that are linked because of that right that photo the photo the photo of that helicopter points to a past but it also you know led to a future right and for me that has you know that that puts me in terms of like to answer your question what does it mean to be vietnamese i mean like it encompasses all of that yeah. i'm incredibly proud to be vietnamese right be you know like because you know, like, it's not just about, you know, I'm, I come from a certain kind of, I, I come from a country, you know, that's in Southeast Asia, and, you know, they had beaten the Americans, they'd beaten the French, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, not all, you know, kind of falling into that line. No, this is, you know, where it's more like, here's, I come from a, a country that's so full of questions, you know, like, again, I can dive into it. You know, and everywhere I go, it's it, you know, it, it comes. It's, that history stays with me. That that cultural and historical identity, um, you know, it it goes with me wherever I go. That's follows you. Yeah, I literally wear it, right? And so, you know, like again, being in places, growing up where I have, working in places that I have that I do, I'm to, I'm 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 you know, I'm a very small minority. You know, I'm always like, you know, the one standing out, right? You know, like, so it took me a while to be comfortable with that, right? Because because our parents, let's say, that mentality they grew up with, like, look, don't stand out, keep a low, keep a low profile, work hard, you know, and just kind of slip through the radar, right? You yeah. don't want to be noticed, right? Because if you notice, then, you know, I remember, I remember being picked on for my difference, right? And so it's taken a while to not only embrace that difference, right? And like I said, and wear it now, right? It's like, no, everything that's happened to me, you know, and, and you know, like, again, talking with you uh, about, you know, and answering your questions about my upbringing, my experiences and everything like that, you know, and to get me to where I am, right? I mean, like, I look at where I am compared to where, you know, and, and looking back to how I started and where we started to where I am, you know, that's that's something I want to make sure my kids know. You want to talk about a manual? It's just kind of like, please keep boys you know in terms of my children you know this this think about where you you know like as you're constructing your world as you move forward you know you're eventually going to ask how did i get here there's a rich history of how you got here <laughs> and i want to be prepared to to have that conversation with yeah. them when they start asking that question because it's not you know like it's not as cut and dry right 
And that, and again, thanks to the intense documentation that we have available at our fingertips at this point in time in history, right? They can actually absorb a lot more, you know, and then when they, you know, the time comes to actually experience it, right? Whether it be through oral history, you know, stories being told to them by my grandparents or me, or the things that have been written down, things that they studied, and then finally going back and experiencing what it's like to be in, you know, let's say Vietnam, you know, tracing the footprints in the sand of yeah. not only me and the journey that I made to understand myself through my parents and everything like that. So then they can actually see, oh, this is kind of for them, this is where it all started. You know, it starts there for them, right? For me, I'm proud to say that it started there. Yeah. Right. Because this little country in this little country that's been the battleground for a lot of superpowers to basically wage their kind of wars, you know, um, in that country, in this little, you know, like this is where we come from, you know, where we've been upon in a lot of geopolitical struggles, and especially in the 20th century. Right. And we come out of it and we've come out of it as individuals. Right. And that's the legacy that we bear, right? There's yeah. scars. We bear, we carry those kinds of scars all over the place. And those scars tell stories. Each scar is a story, right? It's a trace. So how do we make sense of that? How do we, you know, instead of being, you know, I think some of our, our parents' generations, those scars are very traumatic, right? And so it's very hard for them to talk about sometimes, right? Because it's so firsthand. But because we have that, you know, we're the children and we have that detachment, right? We can have that ability to, you know, kind of engage with it with, uh, with less trauma, let's say, and then try to help, you know, either help them through it or at least come to terms with it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick, what, uh, what you got into uh, the electrical engineering field uh, mm -hmm. from that point to um, working at the NATO archives, what was your journey? Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so my undergraduate degree, I, um, I was, a, you know, I did, I did my undergraduate in electrical engineering at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. That was a slog. Okay, it wasn't the easiest. Uh, it wasn't the easiest uh, degree for me. Um, it was very humbling, in the sense that you know, here was a, a path that was chosen for me or you know, literally chosen for me because I didn't know what else to do. That was based on the fact, you know, the idea that these, it would, I would benefit, you know, my skills, you know, and everything that I'd worked on would, you know, would pave the way for me to this kind of career. Right. Well, you know, I failed spectacularly, right? Um, it was extremely difficult for me. Um, you know, and to the point where I started questioning, you know, again, all those, you know, a lot of the doubts that we, you know, already carry with us and the pressure that, uh, you know, like we have, that's, you know, you know, like that's, there's, uh, we didn't come all this way for you to fail, you know, yeah. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't escape a war only for you to, you know, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, I survived the engineering degree. I was able to find work in the field, right? But I always kind of knew that, you know, this, uh, this is not necessarily my cup of tea, right? And I had mentioned before that there were things that I liked to do, like, you know, like if you want, some people would call them hobbies, 
right? But there were things that I was really drawn towards, right? That I didn't realize that one could study academically, right? So the major one for me, and I'm very, very interested, you know, I've always been interested in visual narrative, right? So, you know, I would read a lot of, when I was growing up, I read a lot of comics and I watched a lot of films. My father was a cinephile and he always had films lying around the house, right? He was one of those early adopters of home, home, home cinema technology. So when we arrived in Calgary, he had an eight millimeter camera. He was shooting home movies. Um, we were, you know, and at that time libraries were renting eight millimeter films to bring home and, and watch and project on a screen, right? Pre-VHS. Right. And then when VHS and, and Betamax came, we had those in our house. So we, I was always, you know, I had a very early on, I had the ability to watch, you know, and that, that, um, that habit of rewatching films, you know, and in the habit of rewatching films, you kind of, you know, start to get to know them. You can have, you know, then you start picking apart things, differences, you know, picking out scenes, favorite scenes, describing them, talking about them. You know, in other words, a kind of proto-film studies kind of approach, right. right? And so, you know, I read, I ended up reading them. I'd go to the library a lot and I'd read a lot. Oh, there are film books here. Mm. You know, and so I'd spend a lot of time reading about films as well. And then, you know, one of the things about, you know, like uh, growing up in Calgary in the Chinatown, and I think this was the case in almost every Chinatown in, in the States, you had a great video store <laughs> that had all the videos from like you know like hong kong you know they you know there was always something about uh, you know the 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 chinatown video stores that right. just had the most amazing selection of films uh, they were always on top of things right it was like before blockbuster became along you just go rent movies in chinatown yeah and so you know like chinatown was we would hang you know it became like that kind of centralized space for so many of us to eat to socialize um, and then obviously then to rent movies, right? And so I remember the first time I'd go to Chinatown with my father and I went into a video store and it blew my mind. I'm like, oh my God, there's so many, you know, and then there was even that, you know, that kind of forbidden area, right? With the beads, right? Where it's just like, okay, you, you don't go there. I'm like, okay, well, what's behind there? I can't wait to find out what's behind there. But, you know, it's, that has always stuck with me, right? And so many times, you know, by the time we got to a certain age, and I had mentioned that my parents were very involved with the Vietnamese community, um, they didn't need to take us to meetings anymore, right? My grandmother, whom uh, right. had arrived from Vietnam, you know, um, my parents sponsored her to come uh, to, to live uh, in Canada with us after my grandfather died. My maternal grandfather died in Vietnam. So she came to live with us. And so she ended up staying with us as is the way, you know, that's just the way it is, right? Um, so she, she ended up, you know, so that freed my parents to do what they needed without having to take us anymore. And so that's what we would do. My brother and I, we would watch these movies all the time. My father, you know, my father would had learned very quickly how to tape movies, like so transferring, uh, you know, a rental into, you know, a blank tape. And <laughs> we would, we, you know, we had, we had, we had Star Wars very early on, for example, we, my brother and I memorized that film like to death, you know? Wow. So that, you know, film has always been a major part of my life. And, you know, my father being a specific type of cinephile, right? I mean, like he, he was a very much 1950s, early 1960s Hollywood cinema uh, kind of um, fan, right? And I think a lot of it had to do with his, you know, seeing a lot of these stars, especially, 
you know, like uh, these younger actors, these younger method actors coming, coming, uh, you know, becoming more popular, like the, the James Deans, the Montgomery Cliffs, the Marlon Brandos, the Warren Beatties, right? Like there's those, those, those actors and the films that they were in really kind of marked my father. Mm. And so we had those films too, right? And a lot of films around those eras. So I was very, I was introduced to classical Hollywood cinema very early on, right? I loved black and white films and then staying up late at night, you, you know, you get those late night movies again, old movies again. So I would just eat that stuff up. But again, I never understood it as something that you could study. So it was only when I was in, it was only when I went to my undergrad and I went to a school, Queens University, that I was introduced to friends and they were taking film studies. And I was like, you can take this, this is, you know, cause there wasn't in Calgary at the university, there was no, there wasn't a film studies program there. So it never entered my mind. So by when I went there and then it just happened to be that Queens University was the first university in Canada to open up a film school in the late seventies. Wow. So I was just like, Oh, this is a thing, you know, and I was fascinated by it. So my friends would tell me about what they were studying and I was like, wow, I really wish, you know, I really wish I knew about this, right? But I've already gone on a certain kind of path. But because that path ended up, you know, leading me to repeat a lot of courses, <laughs> um, I had by the time uh, a four-year degree, you know, a four-year degree turned into a six-year degree. And so I had a lot of, let's say, course, you know, I had a lot in the, in the courses that I had to repeat. I had some extra courses to fill in since I was paying full tuition. So I was like, well, I'm going to take some film courses then. I'm going to take advantage of this situation and take some film courses. And the film courses that I, I took really kind of like, you know, you can see the light bulb go off in my head, right? I, you know, it's just, I can, and uh, film studies at Queens at that time really was focused on theory and history, not so much production, but theory, history, criticism, you know? And so in other words, ways of seeing the world, you know, as negotiated through film. And that blew my mind. I was just like, this is what I want to do. I love the idea of seeing the world in this way, you know, putting right. it in, you know, into a, a kind of a historical, cultural, social, political context. Right. Um, so that was always in the back of my mind when I worked in, in, the, in the engineering field for three years, I realized that very quickly my, um, my, uh, my knowledge had an expiry date, you know, like that field, you constantly need to renew yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, knowing, having a lot of friends who were in that field, renewing that knowledge is a pleasure to them. It wasn't to me, it was labor. And I realized that, no, if I stayed in this field, I was going to either stagnate or get fired very quickly and very be extremely unemployable. But the film thing had always stuck in my head. And so I literally went back to my, uh, my, my, my film professors uh, in my undergrad you know, I called him up. I had a holiday one day. I called him up and I said, you know, I had a meeting with him. I was like, look, I want to do what you do. I just don't know how to do it. You know, can you, can you, oh. can you give me some tips? <laughs> and it just, again, there was a, you know, there's a lot of synchronicity and luck in my life. It just happened to be at that moment that the city that I was living in, Ottawa, Ontario, um, you know, he had just said that, oh, well, the, you know, the university that in, in Ottawa, they've just opened up the second master's degree program in the country. You should check it out. Right. And so, you know, I started to do some inquiries and then through a network of coincidences, again, my love of comics led me to befriend several people who were doing comic studies, you know, doing their PhDs in comics. And they just happened to have gotten, you know, they were familiar with the school and the professors 
uh, and this film school in Ottawa. So through that network, I was able to kind of meet the supervisors there and they you know, had a meeting with them and, you know, they encouraged me to apply and I got in and I was shocked because I was like, well, look, I don't have any background other than a couple of courses, you know, so from, working in the field. From the electrical engineering background to going Film to studies. school, did you ever work in the field of electrical engineering? Yeah, yeah. I worked three years as a test engineer. So, um, uh, and again, I worked for, a, a, you, know, you know, three years for a company called Die Force Systems and they focused, they, uh, their, their niche market was uh, building single board computers for ruggedized environments. So that meant really harsh environments like extreme temperatures, extreme humidities. So, you know, a lot of military applications, right? Yeah. So you, you go back to school to get uh, into the film, a film program, yeah. get a and master's? And I did that, and I ended up getting a master's degree in film studies because what I, what I felt like doing is that I wanted to teach film, right? I loved it so much that I wanted to share, you know, like what yeah. I had learned and, you know, you know, kind of, I really admired the, prof I was lucky enough to have really excellent professors that opened my eyes and that feeling of, you know, like sharing that perspective and illuminating you know, let's say things that you think that you knew, but you, but asking you to see it in a different way, that was really attractive to me. And that's something that, you know, like I kind of did that already in, in a certain kind of sense. So to see it done in that context was like, wow, this is, I think this is a nice marriage. Um, so that led me to teach film studies for several years uh, at the university as well. After I got my master's degree, I ended up teaching there. But one of the kind of let's say byproducts of going of doing my master's in film studies was that I got into film preservation. Uh, there was a there was a, one of the lectures was a guest uh, speaker who worked at the National Archives of Canada in the film preservation lab. He and I hit it off. He ended up giving me a student contract at the National Archives uh, film lab, and there they were all about restoring films like actual film, you know, like film film, you know, appraising them, evaluating them, preparing them, splicing, you know, like I learned how to splice and, you know, just getting a basic understanding of film preservation. And that was really, uh, you know, a, a really excellent experience. And, you know, to be able to handle film, like the material aspect of film, du understanding how it's duplicated, you know, and uh, preserved and everything like that, right? So that's how I got into archives. Right. I got into the archives because of film preservation. And when I was in, in the film preservation, uh, after several years of, as working as a, as a film conservator, um, there was openings in government records uh, in the archives section. And so a friend of mine really encouraged me to go. And I was like, well, I don't have any background in this stuff. But, you know, I don't have anything to lose. I, I applied. I succeeded in the competition and I you know, I ended up being a government records archivist. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I got hired in the, into, into that area, because I was like, I don't have any idea, but I was ended up, you know, because I never had any experience with government records. But one of the things that they understood when, you know, from my interview was that I understood uh, cultural production, right? Because of my film studies background and my interest in all that stuff. And so a lot of the government agencies that were I became responsible for in terms of my portfolio were the cultural production agencies. So 
you know, uh, agent, you know, agencies that gave grants to films, you know, to film production for film production, or you know, like the television broadcasting uh, corporation, you know, those kind, that kind of people, right? So that was my, that was how I ended up getting into the government records archives, and then through the government records, that's how I ended up getting into NATO. Because it was at my my time in the National Archives, and it's called Library and Archives of Canada, working as a government records archivist. That again, I was encouraged to apply for oh, this opening at, in the NATO archives. I was like, again, I don't have any, you know. Again, I you know, I'm the first one to actually, you know, kind of dissuade people who are encouraging me to do something, to to um, you know to to go for this because I'm like, I don't have any background in political military. Um, you know records but you know you know i still apply i said oh, well, what do i got to lose if you know if, if i get to the competition at least i get a free trip to europe like that's how i was thinking right but i ended up getting the job and so that's been the adventure since why wow. and when you say and, it's a competition what did what did you mean by that so when i say a competition it's just like it's like there's a want ad right i mean like there's an announce. There's a there's a job announcement that's circulated out, right? And and international organizations do this all the time, right? They open it up to the general public, right? It circulates on listservs, uh, if you know. So if you're connected to you know or universities or anything like that, these announcements get out there. It's even posted on the website. Career opportunities, and so you know, in that sense, like I applied, and then it goes through. You know, again, you literally go through a competition, right? So it's like okay. First, you know, you go through the pre-screening process, then there's a short list, and then there's a final list, right? And, you, and you're always kind of being evaluated at every stage, right? So interviewing, writing, writing exams, um, any language tests, what's your language profic proficiency? In the case of NATO, English and, English and French are the official languages of business. So they want to see exactly how many, are you proficient in English? And if you are, then how proficient are you in French, you know? And then they, you know, and then basically they tally up your score and then it's balanced, you know, and then it's kind of measured off against the other candidates that uh, made it to the final cut. And then a decision is made in terms of, okay, who, which is the, who, of all these candidates, which one is the best fit? So that's what I mean by uh, competition. Got it. And how many uh, positions were open um, for that job that you, that you um, submitted for? So what was, you know, again, I'm blessed with some kind of cosmic luck in terms of, you know, by the time I arrive on these things, the positions that I applied for were brand new, right? They had just opened up because, you know, to give you a little history, you know, this is around 2005, that 2006, actually, 2006, 2007, that I applied for this stuff, this, this job, February, 2007, that's it. That was when I submitted the, um, my application. The NATO archives um, is, is inaugurated in 1999, okay? And so it's, it's a brand new, let's say, service within the organization. And so it takes a little bit of time to, you know, because it's a bureaucracy, things take a long time. So it took a while for, okay, there's the announcement of the service, and then we've got to build the service, right? So they brought in an archivist who basically started the work and then, you know, laid the foundation and then started to create, you know, a team that needed, you know, like if this is the function of the archives, it requires to be staffed in this way. There needs teams, and there's going to be units to do this work. And so, 
a new unit was created and that was the unit that included my position. So I was the first, I was the first one to occupy that position. So I applied in 2007, I arrived in 2009. Um, and again, it was an archives assistant role. And so it was basically, again, just kind of organizing the archives because um, it was, you know, again, it needed to be, you know, it needed to have modernized, like a, a modern archives approach to the collection as opposed to just kind of like dumping stuff in and then just organizing them by subject, right? And, you know, like archive, there's ar there's an archival science, right? And there's archive theories and, and ways of doing things that, especially on an international level, so that, you know, there's an international standard so that, you know, people, people uh, you know, researchers can have access to it, right? And so it was during this position, my, during my work there that, uh, you know, I, um, a new archivist came in and she was very attentive to the accessibility uh, issue of archives how to make these how to make the archives accessible and accessible means not only just making you know making sure that they're preserved properly but letting people know that they can research them they right. can use them right and so outreach she put a, she put a um, an emphasis uh, which hadn't been there before to a certain kind of degree on a regular degree on outreach activities related to what the archives was doing and so i ended up getting involved in, in a lot of those projects like finding ways, like exhibition work finding ways to highlight you know the work that we were doing in the archives and the records that we were processing and making available to researchers letting people know like hey these are now ready for you uh to 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 come and and and, and study and to you know like interpret in your own way Right. And so, you know, I had been, do I basically started doing two exhibitions a year, right? And usually they're internal because we wanted to raise the profile of the archives and the organization because most people, when they think of archives, you know, it's not a very, it's not really the most positive or dynamic idea, right? And so what we wanted to do was kind of change people's perspectives, pe change people's ideas that, you know, no, it is actually a, quite a dynamic, it's not a static kind of like, you know, dusty to cobwebs, you know, find, you know, the eventual treasure, like you might find the lost Ark of the Covenant and a whole bunch of boxes down in the basement. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. But, you know, like there's stuff here that, you know, and again, it's always been my, my, um, my philosophy, right, is that, okay, well, here's a whole bunch of information. So what's the context around that information? What makes it interesting? Right? How do we make this stuff interesting? Well, let's illuminate the context, right? So then, by providing a context, it allows a, you know, hmm. it it allows an entryway to understand its relationships, right? Not only to the context, but to other documents or things outside of that context, right? And so, at least it becomes at least a, a foundation to build certain systems of knowledge around. So that's my that's always been my approach. So when when you meet when you say exhibition, um, mm -hmm. I think you know when I think of archives, I just think of these rooms filled with filing cabinets of information. Um, but but exhibition that requires some sort of proactive thought, right? To organize like an event and get the word out. And exhibitions typically mean that there there are things that you have to curate and put out into the public so they can sort of think about the contextual positioning between imagery. So how, how did that all, how do you break that down? Yeah, those, I mean, those are good questions. I mean, like, uh, cause I think they touch, they really go at the heart of the nature of the work, right? Cause it is a challenge, right? I mean, like one of the things, 
one of the things to keep in mind that, you know, it's like an archives exhibition is very different from a museum exhibition, right? Like, right. you don't, you know, like highlighting documents, you know, and putting them in display cases is not the most interesting thing, right? Unless it's, you know, like one of the most important documents, like the constitution, for example, right? There, that's something else, right? What that's the, that is a rare kind of example, right? Most, you know, most archives is all about, you know, like, again, the nature of the documents means that, you know, like they're long documents, right? They're, and there are several documents. You don't, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to put a page, uh, uh, pages of a report, you know, on display. It just doesn't make sense, right? You just might as well give people the report instead of, you know. And so the notion of, let's say, doc, um, presenting originals the way you would in a museum, right? Like, well, here's the original document, right? Like that aura of, of its uh, originality, of its novelty, you know, doesn't even cross my mind in an archives exhibit, unless, unless you know, it, it is that one piece of, you know, like a monumental, you know, kind of document, like, right. okay, here's the, here is the document that appoints, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower as the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, the first one. Okay, that's, that's a nice big deal one. Okay, fine. But, you know, in terms of how we go about, you know, curating the ex exhibition and figuring it out, well, a lot, you know, the, the main, the main, let's say, um, impetus behind the exhibition is to promote the disclosure activity, right? So it's like, okay, recent, recent, file, recent files have been declassified and publicly disclosed, you know, as, at, the at the request of a certain nation. Right, so I'll give an example. In this case, um, uh, I'll talk about um, Poland. You know, they were very proactive in making a request for declassification and public disclosure uh, about doc uh, records um, that uh, that uh, were related to the Declaration of Martial Law in 1981. Right, it's a, it's a for them. It was a very kind of it's an important historical moment in their national history. Um, and so they weren't, obviously, they weren't members of NATO at the time. And so a lot of the information is a mystery to them. And so they want to they, they want to learn more about it. And so now that they're members, they have the ability to go in and make that request. And then making that request, they can actually go through some of the documents and then select which ones that they would like to declassify. And so we worked with the, we worked with the Pol Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their archives in this process of selecting documents, declassifying them. Um, they, they identified a set of records. Okay, fine, we disclosed them. And then it became time to, you know, okay, well, let's publicize the fact that this, this labor has been done. All right, well, what do the records say, right? So I'd read through the records. I'm like, okay, there's, there's, there's a lot of reports about what's going on. You know, like, uh, you know, it was again, a moment when martial law was declared and it was literally, you know, like citizens were arrested, uh, you know, political, you know, like, and a lot of political figures like, like Walesa were thrown into, thrown into jail, you know, the soul solidarity movement, right? It was a very, it was a cracking point in the, in the, in the country's history. I have a question though. When you say their archives, these are archives that are kept by the, by the NATO organization right that's right yes it because it's not polish archives or this is stuff that nato collected on poland that's correct and it was classified for the longest time until that period that's right so what what's the actual process of a country 
coming to NATO and say, hey, uh, we want to know what was written about us. And who would in Poland lobby for that? Oh, I mean, you know, I, you know, I, those are all very good questions. And I think this even speaks to some of the things that we were talking about earlier, right? So in the case, in, in the case that in the example that I'm talking about, you know, you know, a, a country like Poland does have as a member of NATO, they have that they have the, you know, they have the right to make these requests, and they're interested in it, because, you know, it, like I said, by revealing this part of their national history, it also reinforces their relationship with the alliance, you know, their historical relationship with the alliance, and the, how they can carry it forward, and then at the same time, look backwards at it. Here is, you know, like, during this moment of national crisis, right, here is how the allied nations were thinking about us, reacting to what was going on, right? What was the thought process? What is the political analysis? What's the military analysis? Was their action, was, you know, how are they dealing with this, right? Because they didn't know, they, they didn't know. And this becomes a way of illuminating their national past. And yet at the same time, linking them to, you know, the, you know, the allied, the, the allied organization. Right, because so then their that history, even though it's you know again it's it's not from their eyes, it's from a different perspective. It opens up and enlarges the context of how they look at their historical moment, right? Because it's an because NATO is, uh, you know, again a group of allies, you know, so the country the information is coming from multiple national perspectives, right? So you know, I mean. Some of the some of the um, in some of the information that was disclosed, for example, were embassy reports, right? Because NATO as an entity, they're not on the ground in in Poland, but for example, Canada had an embassy in Poland, yeah. France had an embassy in Poland, right? So they the, those embassies were getting reports and sending them back to their capitals, and then the capitals would share. You know, part of being a, an alliance is that you share information. Right in an allied context, right? So in a, you know, and in, 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 because it's NATO in a, um, in a political military context, right? That kind of information sharing then because then becomes the basis for certain kinds of decisions. How are we going to react to this, right? This is not an attack on our alliance, right? But the alliance needs to be aware of this, as a, you know, how are we going to handle this situation? Should you know, should it escalate? Right, and in in many cases, and this is the this has been the case for many many situations that you know uh, for countries that have gone through, you know, like uh, let's say upheaval or turmoil not at a national level, like Hungary or Poland or the Czech Republic, especially. Right, what's in, what ends up happening is like, well, NATO NATO can't really do anything. They're not the world's policemen. They don't go in and correct this. That's an, you know that's that's an internal situation. But they stood ready. The alliance stood ready to to welcome and deal with the situation of refugees. So people fleeing that situation, seeking political asylum and refuge in allied countries, and then be and then having and, and then having programs, working with other international organizations like the Red Cross, right, to basically help these people help people relocate, restart their lives. You know, and again. This has, you know, like doesn't you can see the parallels about what with, with our experience, right? Yeah. Just kind of like here's something that happens where people are forced to flee, they have to rebuild their lives. You know, an organization like like NATO, again, 
that's their coordination. That's the, that's what that's what a lot of the information that they're sharing ends up leading towards, right? These kind of relief, humanitarian relief um, uh, activities that, in you know, in lieu of let's say military response, they're going to look. At, they're they're going to treat it in the in the opposite sense, which is like okay. And again, there are several instances where again welcoming refugees, uh, political, uh, you know, whether at, especially at the political uh, level has been, you know, let's say a hallmark of, uh, uh, of NATO's activities, right? I, I have one, a... And one that really hasn't been, and again, it's thanks to the disclosure of this information that this aspect of their activities has become more and more known. Right? Yeah, I, that that's, that's the thing I was going to ask you. I mean, okay, um, embassies all over uh, the region is collecting uh, reports and how are they be actively being brought in back to NATO to be archived and then again my question goes back to Poland as a government there has to be a group of people that are lobbying for this declassification mm-hmm. how is this what, what's the mechanics of all of this happening oh I mean I think it's part of, a lot of it has to do with uh, you know, again, things like transparency, accountability, right? Especially at that level, right? Those are those are those are let's say values that you know, like large-scale organizations and countries want to you know kind of demonstrate, especially to their citizenship, citizenry, right? That level of accountability. Part of it is again, when you think about it too, and I think this touches on something like you know the questions that you answered, like with respect to the generational questions, like well, what happened before? Right. I mean, like there are I, I, you know, working in an international organization like NATO and being my age and seeing, let's say, you know, like, uh, you know, the next generation of workers coming in, especially interns and stuff like that. When you realize that all, you know, a lot of these kids, and I, I don't mean to sound patronizing by calling them kids, but, you know, they were all born after the Berlin Wall fell. You know, after communism, that whole that whole thing, yeah, that whole business about you know, the Iron Curtain and everything like that. They never grew up in that. You know, they dealt with the aftermath of the fall of the wall, but they didn't. You know, like similar to our parents, right? They lived, you know, under you know, like there was this communist regime, this threat, you know, that basically defined their lives, and then it was gone. And so, what happens afterwards, right? And then they're growing up in an era where things changed extremely fast, right? From, you know, years and years of living in this kind of regime, a tightly controlled regime where all of a sudden there's freedom of movement, you know, free market, you know, um, things are coming in like images of, you know, again, this is that MTV generation where, where you're just getting these images of like a certain kind of fly, you know, like uh, of fashion of life, of culture of, and everything, right? And you want to be a part of it, right? Uh, but it's aspirational, right? And so like, again, you know, like, uh, it's a very fast ramp, right? That, that they're all living through, right? I mean, like when I'm, I'm, and I'm interested in that because and I, when I speak to, you know, the, you know, like the, you know, like, um, you know, like, I guess uh, people of, you know, the generation behind me, right? I'm, I'm very fascinated to kind of keep in mind the historical context of, of their age, you know, and pointing out things like, you know, like, again, you didn't grow up in that, you know, you didn't grow up in that context, you know, but your parents did. How do your parents talk to you about what they went through, right? Because it mirrors, it, in many ways, it parallels our experience, right? How, right. you know, how did you deal, you know, how do you, living in an era living in an environment now where really 
the world is much is is a much more open uh, with much more opportunities for you than your parents ever had you know how do you negotiate that how do you reconcile that with your parents how do your parents reconcile that with you right these are the same questions that we grow up you know that we grow up with uh, being you know vietnamese of a certain time and place right? yeah so i relate you know like it's i find it interesting to relate to people in that context right because even though our experiences are extremely different we are you know again we're products you know our countries are you know and our histories are products of this you know this massive you know conflict you know these two of you know these you know warring ideologies that really defined a certain kind of life you know and, and you know with history with a capital h and how do we emerge from it Right, and so that you know, to you know, as a long way around to answer your question about the mechanisms and why a country like Poland would want to do something like this, right? It is to excavate the past. It is to find the relationship and, and to find a certain kind of meaning, and especially, you know, like if you want to call it revisionist, you know, or revisionist doesn't necessarily have to be negative or completely like, you know, rewriting, but you know, like adding another layer. Right, a layer that wasn't available to them at the time, which is that perspective of the Arab nations. Right, they'd heard it from their perspective. Well, what is it? How does we fit into the larger, you know, kind of global, you know, kind of story? Right. How does you know? And then what insights can we get out of that? When you um, arrived at NATO, what was your first year? What was your day-to-day, -day, you know, routine? What was your job description? Oh, I mean, I was I was hired to basically help um, take, you know, I was I was in a collections management role, right? So here's, you know, part of it was getting the, getting getting the getting the archives into order, right? Because it was it needed to be reordered in the profession, you know, using modern, you know, professional archival methodology, right? It had been it, you know, things had been archived in the, you know, let's say in the popular sense of what archives means in the same way, like, for example, on your Gmail, you have the archive button. Archive just in that respect means, okay, I'm going to put it in a different place, you know, and it's just going to stay there, right? I'm keeping it and not deleting it, you know, and whether or not you actually go into the archive and then start, let's say, organizing it by folder and then by, by sender or whatever, right? that's up to you, right? That's what we had to do, right? You know, we had to, you know, like things had been saved, but not necessarily in a certain kind of order, right? They were saved in the order that they were used, as opposed to saved in an order that could be accessed later on, that made sense, right? So that's what, you know, that's in a large part what the job of archives is, right? Is to organize a collection so that A, it has a certain kind, it respects, you know, like how the, you know, how the records were created you know but also the relationship between the records the chronology of it i mean like it's it's an interesting question because you know just think about how you archive your own right or your you know your own life your own records your tax records for yeah. example and, and after when seven I think, years you don't need them you throw them away yeah right? and when i think of all of these records i think there's there's photos there's hard documents there's digital documents that are coming in from my phone my computer from all over the i can't imagine what the nato archives look and feel like in in the quote-unquote the room that these things are being stored and, and organized yeah i mean like like any of like any of the international organizations right i mean like as i mentioned before the act of archiving has always been there right i mean like 
you know, records are created, meetings, meetings are, you know, meetings are had, decisions are made, the records of the decisions are made, action is taken, the records of those actions are taken, you know, those, those are the kinds of records, right? And, you know, they're created, they're circulated, and then they get saved, right? And the thing is, it's just kind of like, okay, here's project, we put everything in the project folder, and then it's saved, right? And then we archive it. And there's a, okay, it's not, we're done, project's over, we don't need it anymore. Here's everything, save it, right? That's, for the longest time, that's, you know, a lot of people, and I'd say a lot of people think that's what archiving is, right? But we go, you know, the modern archives is more about, okay, well, okay, well, have, you know, like, fine, that's the way it is. That's, it's kind of like a, here's a folder and here's, based on the subject. But how are we going to organize this in a way that, you know, makes sense, that actually reveals how an organization actually conducts its work, right? So, I mean, like, in many ways, this is like a lot of, you know, like, NATO, the NATO is very much a corporate, it's very similar to a corporate archive, right? Just like, right. what are the, you know, like, it's, it's organized by business function. Right, like so, there's going to be a whole bunch of like if this is it gives, you know, a, a good, you know, a good, you know, like archival organization will give you a good idea of how the organization works, and so the records then become, you know, an indicative of exactly the the output of the work of the organization. So a good archive will look at it and you're like, oh, I have a good understanding how of how this whole machine works. Right. And so that's what, you know, again, so archiving in that way, very much to what I was kind of saying in terms of my own personal project is about reconstructing something, mm. right? Reconstructing about how, you know, the context of how something works, right? Um, and then you can get into the, the granular details, right? How many, getting that structure is important. How many people work in the NATO archives? Uh, we're a small team. It's about 10 people, yeah. and but it's a huge job. And it gets bigger and bigger every day, right? Digital, you know, digital information is like you said, the amount of the, the amount of information that you have in your phone compared to, I mean, like, think about think about how much is on your phone, you know, and how, if you actually were to visualize that, it's insane, yeah, you know, it's insane, it's insane, right? So yeah, I cannot you know, imagine. And so given the given the large amount of activities that any organization you know, kind of uh, does on a daily basis and on an annual basis, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an insane amount of work, like archives is an insane amount of work, right? And people tend to think of archives as this action that you do at the end, as opposed to no, I got to put a plan in place at the beginning, wow. mm -hmm. so that I'm prepared, right? So in many ways, like, for example, like, like what you're doing, what you're doing this project, I'd say, right? You're you you, you, this, you are archiving memories, right? And you've had a certain kind of plan of like, okay, well, I'm going to put all of these on my website, right? And right. each one of your podcasts is available and accessible for all of us to hear and listen to, right? And eventually, you back them up. Probably it's not they're only they're not available only on the website, right? You've got the original recordings, you've got the edited product that you put out, right? And you probably save it somewhere, right? Because you know, um, and you probably had to think about that before. You know, like, okay, this is how I got. Because you got a massive amount of information. It didn't come, you know, like. And this was a project. I think that has, you know, you had a plan, and the plan part of it was, okay, what am I going to do with all this stuff? Well, you have a plan, right? I understand you. 
you know, have a, you know, a good, you know, up to 2050 at least, you know, and so you need to archive this stuff, right? Because uh, you want it to be a living archive. Correct. Right. And so that plan was, you know, I would argue that you had a plan, maybe rudimentary at first, at the beginning, but it was at least there. This is not something that at the end of it, you're like, oh, maybe I can do something about all this stuff. You've organized all of your raw files into their own separate folders, and then so that it's easy to access for you when you do, when you need to get to do work, or you want to like go back and maybe revisit uh, an old uh, an old interview and re-edit it in a different way so that different aspects are come out. You know, right. things that weren't talked about, or you know, re-editing it or remixing it in a different way so that sim you know, like say the similar elements are being used with diff different elements to provide a different, you know, divide a completely different. Correct. Um, um, this idea of opening up the archives, or you know, as I understand it, there's a a reading room that was constructed um, a few years ago. What is the purpose? Why why would NATO want to open up? I mean, it's probably a very basic question, but I think I'm just going to have to ask it mm -hmm. just so we have it on record. But why would NATO open up a reading room or even have these documents open up to the public? Well, I mean, okay, so, I mean, again, in 1999 is when the, the archives is formally opened. Um, and it's a symbolic opening because it's the opening of its reading room. Um, on site on NATO at NATO headquarters, so that about 33,000 declassified and publicly disclosed documents were finally made available. They had gone through the entire process, and they were made available to researchers, you know, military researchers, you know, uh, professors, you know, like back, you know, academics, to finally to you know, and again, they were all linked to the origins of the organization. So, like the 1949 onwards to 19, you know, let's say the first ten years, 49 to 59, right? To give a to give a glimpse at the understanding, because you know, NATO. When you think when you're for the longest time, and I think you know, there's a big mystery. What well, what is NATO? Is like you know, most people when I tell them I work at NATO, they think like I work at MI5, right? I'm like oh, this espionage stuff, right? I'm like, well, no, no, no. It's much more banal than that, right? You know, uh, you know, it's 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 an organization where it's 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 a, it's an organization where diplomacy reigns, right? It's about right. talking, it's about meeting, it's about figuring out solutions diplomatically, right? So, what is the you know like so? There's a lot of questions, and, and these early records really helped to give researchers an idea of how this you know the birth of of this process, you know how it all came to be, right? And the fact that this happens in 1999, right? It's just kind of like, all right, this is 10 years after the fall of the wall. You know, NATO is, you know, kind of, it was made basically as a kind of a, you know, as a defense against the Soviet Union and communism. But okay, well that ends in 1989, uh, you know, symbolically. And then there's a process for the next 10 years where that whole structure gets to be, you know, uh, the Soviet, you know, the former Soviet Union starts to kind of completely redefine itself. And, you know, and within a NATO context, you had former adversaries becoming allies, right? So, like former Warsaw Pact countries, like again, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, right? You know, they end up joining NATO. They're the first ones to join, right? In 1999, right? So, we're heading into, you know, we're we're heading into the new millennium. 1999 is happening. Former adversaries are becoming allies. There's, you know, there's a rapid change going on. 
the old, you know, like, you know, there's a sense that, you know, the NATO that was will continue to exist, but, you know, it's changed, it'll be, it's gonna, it's evolving into something else. So now's a good time to, you know, and in many ways, it's just like, well, if old adversaries are turning into friends, we kind of won, right? Right. So it's less of a, an intense, you know, there's a less of an intense shroud of secrecy about it, right? So, you know, the discourse of transparency and accountability coming responsible, you know, you know, that kind of discourse starts to dominate, especially international organizations, right? Being accountable to the people right and being open to history so all of these things kind of all of these forces kind of come into play so that by the time you know like nato declassifies and makes these available and again symbolically makes it having a reading room on site which invites civil you know non-nato personnel to look at these documents for the first time on site you know is a very powerful kind of like symbol or image of you know, a, you know, a security organization that's all that's been historically shrouded in secrecy, right? And the espionage stuff and how it's always been, you know, like seen in the James Bond films or other films, right? It's all, you know, it's about spies, but it's spies exchanging information, right? Documents like, you know, the, the top secret folder that they're hiding or taking photos of and then spiriting it off and handing it off, right? It's always about the information, right? Um, to have that all of a sudden become consultable, you know, in a controlled space, right? So that, you know, business can still can continue. It is a it is a security organization, you know, at the end <laughs> right. of the day. But to be able to say, well, no, you know, like we're opening up, right? You know, part of it is trust building so that, you know, it's mm -hmm. we're not this big question mark. Right. And I think as time goes by, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's important that an organization like NATO is, you know, transparent and accountable, right? So that, you know, there's less questions, you know, it, it, there's less, let's say, of the wrong questions that are being asked, as opposed to, you know, the better questions, right? Like, what are you doing to help, as opposed to what are you hiding, right? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You know, um, is there a, so, after the Cold War is over, is there a counterpart of NATO that exists as the other on on the outside world? As if NATO is the 30, 30 member state, is there a 30 member or 20 member state that exists outside of NATO? So, I mean, yeah, during the Cold War, I mean, there was, you know, it was kind of like, it was an easy kind of like classic movie pairing, right? You had NATO versus the Warsaw Pact, right? It was like the pay-per-view, you know, to end all pay-per-views, right? Like, when's the, you know, like, when are these two going to go to war, right? What's the battleground, right? It, it made for a kind of easy us versus them narrative, right? And so when that story ended, when that grand histor historical narrative ended, you know, and then it became, you know, well, what do we do next? Right? Like, how does NATO redefine itself when its other this, you know, basically dismantled itself, right? And I think this is a question that's been ongoing for the longest time, right? And you'll see it if you read the headlines even now in the, in the latest, uh, in the, at the latest summit uh, that NATO, the summit meeting of the heads of state and government that NATO just had, it is about defining what the new challenges are, right? New challengers even too, right? Um, the world changes like you know the security landscape of change has changed right i mean like i was talking about 1999 all of this was you know there's a feeling of like hmm 
modernizing, friends becoming old enemies, becoming friends, new path forward. We're even starting to talk with Russia. You know, new dialogues are happening. And then, boom, 9-11 happens. Terrorism becomes the next, you know, let's say other, if you want, right? Um, and so that leads to different other, you know, like other activities that end up, you know, let's say dominant, you know, it's where Afghanistan tends to dominate a lot of NATO's activities, right? Terrorism, especially. And then you had the ISIS thing, and, you know, and so on and so forth, right? Terrorism has been a big, uh, let's say, stain on, on the globe for a long time, right? And so adjusting to, you know, like, again, and one of the ways that, you know, we talk about terrorism is that it's stateless. It's not like, 30 terrorist nations getting together right? right it's just kind of like okay well this is you know like how to how do you how do you how do you engage with this right it's kind of changes the rules of the game right so there's a you know like it doesn't change the fact that okay we got you know we're a strong group of friends that you know are banded together to help each other out but you know it's a little harder when you know there's no borders to say we're going you know like hey that's not cool, blah, 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 right? It's just like, so it's, you know, I think it's, it's, I think it's a reflection of the complexities of the world these days, right? In terms of like, okay, well, the otherness is not, is not so clearly defined as the way it was before, right? right? Um, and so that's, I think that's how, you know, again, just, if you just read the news these days, you can see that it is a, you know, it is a, it is the challenge, right? Like, okay, well, and it's and it's you know and it's not put in the same terms as it was in the cold war right right it was easy like it was the commies right now it's just like well you know there's a whole bunch of other things going on right and we have to pay it you know like it's a you know it's an evolving landscape right? can an you evolving security environment can you talk about vietnam as the other um as it relates to uh in the pre-war uh pre-Vietnam War, during the war, and even current to today, what what's sort of been our relationship with NATO as it's been evolving? Well, the thing with Vietnam, I mean, like, it, because, you know, NATO stands for the North Atlantic right. Treaty Organization. So a lot of its focus has been, you know, Euro-Atlantic, right? So again, it's, it's original, the original idea is that, you know, it was there to help contain, you know, the, the Soviet threat, right? So, in, you know, things like Southeast Asia, you know, like areas like Southeast Asia, you know, weren't necessarily, you know, the main, let's say, uh, let's say, uh, concern for the alliance, right? It was out of territory, right? Like part of the treaty focuses on the fact that these are, this is very Got geographically it. bound, right? So, I mean, I think there was, you know, there was attention paid to, to Vietnam in the sense that a lot of allies were, were you know, had a lot of activities in Vietnam during like the Cold War, right? I mean, Vietnam plays in a, such an integral part of the Cold War, right? That outside of the NATO bubble, you know, like again, everything that was happening in France and, and especially in the US, right? Would have echoes, you know, like again, NATO allies were probably informed, but it was just more for information's sake, right? Because if there was going to be a discussion about you know like um you know forces you know like uh, station forces stationed in europe well if you're sending a whole bunch of forces to deal with that situation out there how is that going to right you know affect how you're going to contribute to what we're doing over here 
right? That kind of thing. Or, you know, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of, you know, again, a lot of, a lot about NATO is all about information sharing, right? So it's like, okay, well, what's going on there? What's the analysis of that situation? You know, do we see it affecting it, you know, uh, affecting uh, the situation uh, in other areas that are closer to us, for example? How are, how is your actions over there going to affect us over here? You know, that kind of thing, right? So right. a lot of it is intelligence building without actually, and again, so the American involvement um, in Vietnam has, you know, again, NATO allies could probably disagree with it. They're like, mm, we're not really cool with what you did, but that's your business, right? What we do together mm, is a good story. Got it. Right? And that's that's the challenge of, of, of alliances, right? Like you, that you don't always have to agree on everything, but you have to agree on the key things that bind you, right? It's just like a marriage, right? It's <laughs> like family, right? I mean, like when you're all around the table and you have to deal with something that has common interests to all of you, you have to figure a way out. But there are things outside that you're doing on your own that may not necessarily involve the family. Got it. So Got why it. should it? Why? Why does the U.S. pay an overwhelming, disproportionate uh, majority to the, the 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 fund? Well, I mean, there's a larger, you know, I I, I can only speak to let's say the historical, you know, like from an historical perspective, right? Uh, that's not this is you know that that whole question isn't necessarily my you know my my go to uh, you know, subject, but I would say you know if you look at it historically. Right. I mean, like NATO coming out of it, you know, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Right. One of the things that, you know, like, again, one of the things that's that's part of U.S. foreign policy is, you know, like um, an investment in Europe. I mean, that's what the Marshall Plan is. Right. A, re a complete reinvestment in the rebuilding of Europe. Right. Because a strong Europe was, you know, like it was in the it was in the U.S.'s best you know, interests to have a strong Europe to contain, you know, the Soviet Union, right? And if, the, if, if a strong Europe meant helping them to get back up on their feet, get their industries going again, get their economies going again, and, and helping out with the defense and bringing people together, right? That was in the US's best interest and it still is in the US best interests, right? And that's been part of the, let's say that kind of US foreign policy ever since the second world war, which led to things like Vietnam and, you know, and all the other activities that kind of fell in the way, right? I mean, like, sure, like Japan, even, you know, like, again, the, the reconstruction of Japan, yeah. its presence in Korea. I mean, like, you know, the U.S. has been, has, has always been heavily involved um, in that kind of stuff. Uh, in defense, especially defense has been a great, you know, because there are side benefits, collateral benefits to that defense investment, right? I mean, like, you know, with defense investments, comes cultural and economic uh, advantages, right? Business opportunities, right? I mean, like, it's not like as if they're, pay you know, like they, they, I think it's, I think sometimes the way it's presented, uh, you know, in, 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 in kind of headline news, it's like, oh, the U.S. is paying a whole bunch. Well, it's not as if you're not getting anything back, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> it's, it's like any investment, right? I mean, like, Yes, it's, it seems, you know, if you're going to do it, if you're going to look at the numbers in a certain kind of way, yeah, it's easy to, you know, it's, I don't think it's hard to say that, you know, it's easy to point out and to make an argument that, oh, you're being ripped off, right? But, you know, if you look at it in a much more, if you allow it to have a much more complex reading and a much more wider 
reading, you see that, okay, yeah, the numbers say a certain kind of things, but there are other numbers that balance it out, right? And, you know, again, I think the, the, the renewed relationship that comes with the current administration looks basically saying, you know, like, we're you back know, on. We, you know, this is an important relationship. It, you know, it, it is, you know, working together is important, right? Um, and I think that's, it's kind of shown, right? I mean, like, um, I would point you to, um, what's the name, uh, uh, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg. He was invited to speak to Congress in 2000, I think it was 19. Um, and he really laid it out there. It was a very, it's a very good speech and he really lays it out to Congress and therefore by extension the American people exactly what the point NATO is, what it means, what this or the, what this alliance means to the states and what the states means to the alliance. I imagine that there's not a whole lot of people that look like you inside of NATO. Yeah, when I arrived, very little. It's changing, which is good, but it's not like, uh, you know, like we have, there are, I have, it's been a very refreshing change over the last year or so to have, to meet other Vietnamese um, people uh, that have come to work in the organization. You know, one of the, you know, one of the amusing things, it was, and we kind of have, it's kind of like, oh, that kind of secret wink that we <laughs> see each other and we kind of like, oh, because we all, share, a lot of us share the same last name, Nguyen, right? And so we keep getting each other's emails, right? It's just like, no, you, you want the other one, right? <laughs> you know, and so we kind of make jokes about stuff right and uh and so and and just like any you know again and it, it's interesting to me how these kind of patterns kind of reestablish themselves right so oh okay like oh we see each other and oh you know, like hey another win you know and we you know jokingly call each other cuz or you know like things <laughs> like that yeah and, and, and um, is it a vietnamese uh american or canadian or where's that mainly from? i mean uh i've met i've met some vietnamese americans um, but there are also some, let's say, um, if you want to call them Vietnamese Europeans, right? Um, so, but uh, like I said, it's changing. I mean, like I can, it's like I, I can count on two hands how many, you know, how many, uh, how many Vietnamese there are, um, and that's like progressive, right? right? Very. When I when I first arrived, I was like literally, I looked around, I'm like, yep, you know, like I'm going to be confused for the IT guy. I mean, there's no question <laughs> about it, right? And I have been, but, uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's like we, the, like I said, the patterns that form, right. I mean, like we have a, we've created a little kind of email group and then we're trying to like, Hey, did, have you found a place to have good pho? You know, and things <laughs> like that. Where, where's the good places to eat here. Right. Um, and uh, we kind of share that information. Right. And so it's, it's been a nice little kind of like, again, this is what we, this is, this, these are patterns. These are like displacement patterns that kind of repeat themselves. Right. It's like, Oh, Where's your similarities? Where are you looking for similar experiences that are relatable to each other, that are based on our cultural, uh, you know, and ethnic identities, right? Uh, where do you find the good food? If you are a Vietnamese person, there's a, a dozen or so of you uh, working in this sort of cool section. Do you ever think about like the identity of who you are versus uh, where you work? Well, I mean. That's all, you know, like being one of the things I've noted in, in, the, in, the, air, in the professional air environments that I've circulated, especially at this level, right, at the national and the international level, um, is that, you know, 
in a place like NATO and especially in Europe, outside of a, an organization like the United Nations organizations, right? Where it's literally like every country in the world is a part of it, right? You know, whereas NATO, you know, NATO is very, you know, again, Euro-Atlantic, North America, Canada, and then a whole bunch of European, you know, continental uh, you know, European countries, right? So most of the time, most of the time, you know, somebody in like, you know, Asian, would come, you know, the assumption is that, oh, you're coming from North America, or especially you're coming from North America and you're military, right? Because that's yeah. the only way you would get in here, right? <laughs> that type of thing. Um, and I've been, you know, and I think having seen, you know, I have family who, have, who are Vietnamese that grew up in Europe and have found it very, very challenging to kind of break that glass ceiling, that ceiling to get into these kinds of organizations because of, let's say, the almost kind of like uh, the limitations that their identity has, you know, kind of imposed on them because of their because of the the social structure of, yeah. of, of, of the situation. I mean, like, you know, that's it's it can be it's very frustrating on their part, right? I mean, like, it's almost like the game is rigged against them, right? I mean, like. They didn't go to the right schools or they don't know the right people because of a certain kind of thing because their parents didn't know the right people and so on and so forth right it, it would take that really special person to actually break through you know and then you know kind of make sense you know have that kind of social network you know the equivalent of the ivy league social network you know um so that they could you know have their children circulate in in those environments to be able to make the networks to get into you know to have even the awareness of getting into a place like this right and yeah. i think that's part of it is just like i mean i i i'm 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 fairly candid about the fact that i'm i consider myself extremely lucky to be mm. where i am because i didn't plan to be where i am i stumbled into where i am right i mean i never said to myself that like you asked earlier what did you want to, you know, did you have an idea where you wanted to go? I had no idea that I could, you know, like this was going to be a destination, uh, a professional destination for me. And I, I never even considered it. I didn't yeah. even know it existed. Right. And I didn't have, and I didn't know people or I did, it's just that it, it, I was just never exposed to it. Right. It just, it was never a possibility for me. Right. It, it was only by meeting other people that they told me about it. And then even then when I, they told me about it, you know, I was just like, I don't think I've got what it takes there, you know, but some, you know, but I did, you know, like, and being here, I think, you know, and this links to, again, goes right back to your, the question that you started with, what's, how do you feel, you know, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? Being Vietnamese, my, you know, in an, in, you know, and being singled out in many ways in an, or, you know, in a place like this, right, for me is, you know, like, I just want to, you know, like I consider myself extremely fortunate and I'm very aware that, you know, I want to be at least, you know, I don't want to say a role model, but I want to be somebody that, you know, like, hey, if he can do it, you know, what's to stop me from doing it, right? I mean, like, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm being, I, 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 I'm, 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 I, you know, I'm both conscious and unconscious of being representative, right? I mean, like, okay. I'm Vietnamese, and so you know, I'm. Yeah. I want. I, I want other. You know, because I want. I want my kids, for example, to not think about the fact that oh, it's hard to get in there because of who we are. 
that I want them to be, I, and you know, like I'm hoping that by by the time they have kids, that it'll be completely normalized. That this is just a path that's really kind of open to everyone, without those kinds of in, that that kind of interior blockage. Yeah, I, and I appreciate you having that mentality and that that way of that open way of thinking because, it it is a part of 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 the work that I do uh, is showcasing the experience of Vietnamese throughout the world. It's if we could see that. There are Vietnamese at NATO doing uh, very high-level tasks. Then it opens up uh, the possibility of many, many other opportunities, not just within an organization like NATO, but perhaps NASA or the at the UN, that we can function at these high levels and we can do the jobs. And it's not that we're not thinking that we're capable, I think, on a, on a brain or academic or intellectual level. It's just sometimes are, are limited by the fact that we don't see uh the nick winds up in that area right um even though you're there you exist you've been there for over a decade but we don't know about it and um when i saw your cousin andrew's post um i just saw nato and that instantly made me have to reach out to andrew just because i saw that you know it's a branding thing that we get to see and oh my god there's somebody with my last name in that position and now to find out that you're you know you work in the archival department it's even more we can direct questions to you yeah well it's, i find it interesting and I, first of all thank you very much it's very kind of you to say so and you know and the notion that a lot of for you as you said this all started with a photo right you saw a photo of me uh, and uh, and it raised a question and part of it is you know that photo led to understanding the context of exactly what surrounds the photo and the fact that you know like in the in the role that i have and i'm very you know and i count myself extremely lucky to be able to be visible to be you know to be able to you know i work you know i help preserve the institutional memory of the organization in other words i can speak about the the history of the organization right and so being able to do that you know, um, and provide, you know, and especially coming from and, and, and allowing it to have a certain kind of perspective, you know, in many, you know, this is like of all people, I'm one of the people that is the quote unquote, the keepers of the, uh, the gatekeepers of the secrets, right? I, I have an understanding of, you know, the history and the development and the evolution of the organization, right? And I can speak to it, right? And I do speak to it, right? I, I give tour, I give guided tours to the headquarters, for example, right? And I welcome, you know, um, uh, visitors of all, all generations and uh, cultures and everything like that. And I try to, you know, uh, I try to tailor the visit to their experiences so that they get something out of it, right? So that it's that history, you know, like the, that the history of the organization is multifaceted as opposed to static, right? And that's the challenge. And again, this is where, again, it goes back to the questions that we, you know, that kind of keep coming back in our conversation about identity, right? right? You know, like uh, you know, a Romanian visitor versus uh, you know a a, a Slovakian visitor versus a Dan Danish visitor. I mean, those are worlds of difference apart of that in terms of their experience. But okay, well, they're all coming here for this this the thing that binds them. This which is this thing called NATO. So you know what you know it's like a puzzle for me. How do I engage? How do I get them to get it from their perspective, but also, you know, have it a mutually kind of balanced kind of uh, 
experience where they see it from not only their perspective, but also from, you know, an historical perspective and, or the organizational perspective. And so what's the, you know, and so that they can understand and cultivate their own relationship to it, right? Not only its past, but what it's doing now and its future, and if they want to get involved in it. They're there for a reason. They're visiting for a reason. So, you know, let's 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 open that up a little bit. You, you know, a, a common question that I have uh, at my family's dinner um, table um, throughout the years of my parents, my brother, our family, uh, we talk about the world becoming an actual better place or not. Is, you know, that's the debate that we talk about. Do you feel after all of your work at NATO and reading so much documentary do, documents and, and learning about the, the, the world's history from from where you are? Do you feel like the world is actually becoming a better place? Well, the world has always, for me, the world has always had the potential to be a better place. <laughs> you know, like it's, it, I think it's, you know, making sure that, you know, people understand its complexities is, is, is feeds that potential. Um, you know, um, keeping it black and white, you know, keeping it, a, having it at a, at a very binaristic kind of perspective is very dangerous to me, right? Uh, you know, because, you know, like if we accept ourselves as complex individuals, um, I think groups of us are therefore going to be even more complex. And then understanding differences and, and similarities is what makes life better, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of empathy, that kind of uh, recognition, that kind of negotiation, right? That kind of understanding, right? I mean, like that's work, that's labor, right? It's... Uh, breaking through all of that, you know, in, in many ways, that's, you know, that, that is the ideal of what something like NATO is, right? This is like, we're a whole bunch of people, we all come from different backgrounds, we got to find a, we got to find a way to agree on certain things, we may not agree on everything, but we got to find, a, we ought to find common ground, right? And that's, that ideal is something that's very attractive to me, right? Um, and I think even, uh, so on even on, a, especially on a personal basis, right, is this kind of like, you know, and it's, and it's, you know, in many ways, again, it informs the project that you're doing, right? This multitude of voices that, you know, spans across generations, across countries, across times, and yet, you know, you're trying to build an understanding, leave a trace, uh, a memory for future generations to understand, you know, a common experience that, you know, really kind of spread all of us out into different areas and listening to these voices. And then, you know, again, by listening to them, understanding differences and everything like that, to have an ultimate understanding, like outcome of, you know, okay, I have a better idea of people, you know, again, what the Vietnamese in this context, the Vietnamese, what a Vietnamese experience is, you know, the, you know, what the complexity of Vietnamese identity is, you know, and can be, or as a result of all of, you know, of the experiences that have shaped, not only individually, but collectively and historically, and, you know, uh, politically and everything like that. So that the, you know, like the question of Vietnamese then becomes a rich one. And if you embrace the richness of complexity, that I think makes the world a better place because then, yeah. you know, it encourages curiosity, right? As opposed to complacency. It's a right? great answer. And, and I think we're know, missing for me, a lot curio of that. You know, like curiosity is like one of the best character traits that, you know, again, the need to explore, the need to grow, the need to learn, to, you know, to, to make, and, you know, I mean, a lot about learning is about making relationships between things, building bridges, making connections. Right? Yeah. And, 
And I, I hope that um, the platforms, the social media platforms that exist in the world today, there's a lot, of, a lot of good stuff about each platform. You know, uh, recently I've fell into TikTok and I love it. It's great mm -hmm. to promote the podcast with snippets, 60 second clips, 15 second clips. These are great to, to whet the appetite, but I don't, and I'm not sure if it transfers over to a long form where long form lives on a Spotify or li lives on a YouTube. So there's different platforms for different sort of uses, like you were talking about earlier, you know, um, contextually information changes where, wherever it's placed. This is all uh, a, a very wonderful thing that we have social media, but I don't know if people's attention spans or the polarization of people's uh, sort of belief systems is clouding um, the ability to think further and ask uh, questions or go to, to seek answers for their curiosity. Are people really engaging with that information? From, from where you sit, do you think that people are, uh, the, the act of going out to satisfy that curiosity is increasing or decreasing as a result of you know, computer algorithms and social media, sort of uh, the way things are laid out today? Well, I think, you know, one of the, you know, one of the experiences that I enjoy the most, you know, and it's the most challenging in the archives business, if you want, is the reference services, right? So people come and ask you questions. I'm looking for X, you know, I'm curious, I'm working on this subject and I'm looking for documents related to this, this topic, you know, and so my, you know, my role, uh, you know, in, in the archives is to be able to facilitate their access to this information. I'm not a teacher. I mean, being an archivist is not necessarily being like a professor, right? So, you know, like it's up to the researcher to do, you know, the best that they can with the information that is being made accessible to them. You know, what I can do in my role as, a, as an archivist is to provide the context of that information so that at least, you know, like certain assumptions, you know, like, you know, like let's say, better quality assumptions can be made as opposed to left field assumptions right like okay here's a here's a bunch of data points but without the context on those data points they can go radically different ways that were you know well beyond or well outside of the actual scope of what the actual data of uh, uh, and the context of that data it, it is right so being able to at least to you know provide the the information that they are looking for right the actual data points but then actually providing, okay, well, here's, you know, and then, and then this is where the relationship, this face-to-face -face human kind of, kind of, um, kind of, uh, let's say exchange comes in where it's just like, oh, okay, well, because I know this, this data and how it comes about, you know, again, archives is about creating context, the context of the creation of the documents. It gives, you know, relaying that information you know, uh, helping the researchers in that way get a better understanding of what they're working with. You know, they'll retain that and, and with the hope that it will help inform the interpretations that they make out of that data and therefore hopefully make it stronger. Right, right. right. Have you That's the been... best that we can do. That's the best yeah. that I can do, right? I mean, like, I'm not tell I can't tell them how to write the paper. Right. I can't tell right. them how to interpret this. Right. This, that would be my that would be the same philosophy that I had as an instructor, as a teacher. Right. I'm like, as a student, I'm not, you know, like the whole point of the class is not to tell me what I already know. But, you know, here's part of it is that, you know, you develop 
you know, each to each everyone develops their own perspective. But at least if it's grounded in, you know, like I say, in in in, in you know, in a certain kind of, you know, like actual, you know, again the actualities and the you know the complexities of its, you know, like of, the, of everything surrounding it, it becomes a lot more, you know, again it has the potential to be, you know, or, you know uh, a richer and more engaging argument right. that's being presented that you one can easily bounce back off of and you know really have an actual exchange have you been to vietnam been back to vietnam yeah i've been back three times uh the first time i went back was in 1999 and then right afterwards again in 2000 and then again in 2016. so again 1999 is in uh, one of those big years for me in 1999 i had uh, stopped my engineering career uh, i was transitioning to go into film studies at that point. So that trip, that first trip was between just right after I quit engineering and before I started school. So it was a major, I, I really consider it a major kind of like, okay, milestone moment in my life. Cause that's where things really changed. It's like, I really kind of stepped out on my own, right? You know, like in terms of, okay, I'm choosing a career that I've, a career path that I, as of my making, as opposed to something that I was guided to. Yeah, right? that's a scary move, huh? Right, and the fact that it coincides with the moment of me, like again, going back to Vietnam and literally leaving the continent of North America for the first time, and, and to go of all places, to go back to my roots, to discover my heritage, right? Just as before I embark on a project that's about me, that is for, you know, where all the energies are focused on you know what i the direction and the path that i'm carving out for myself right that that was quite significant to me right uh, especially in hindsight i knew it at the time but you know it becomes more and more confirmed you know as i got older i'm like no, 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 no. you know happy coincidence you know in the sense that of all times i decide to go back it's that time as opposed to earlier part of it is like i couldn't really go back Right, the the you know it was very difficult to go back in, to Vietnam until, I mean even 1999 it was still kind of rough. Yeah, the, the infrastructure was still just tourism infrastructure for especially, you know North Americans was just starting to kind of develop. You know European travelers had been discovering it for a while, but you know even then too my when my parents went back in 1994 for the first time, like it was pretty hot for them, right? It was just kind of like, it was a challenge. I remember actually being a little concerned about them, like because of their, like the history of their political activism um, and their outspokenness about, uh, you know, like the government of Vietnam. I mean, like, you know, I, they, I knew that they would be on some kind of like watch list and they were, um, and they would be, you know, like they could, it, they could, you know, once they're in there, like anything can happen, right? I mean, like, any, any, anything is say, well, you know, you didn't, you know, you don't have this paper, so you have to stay or, you know, you just yeah. make some stupid trouble for them. Right. But it didn't happen. But, you know, so that their trip helped pave the way for my trip. So then they say, oh, it's okay for you to go. Here's the people, here's the family that you want to hmm. get in touch with, you know, and again, that notion of meeting, you know, relatives that you'd never met before, but those bonds of kinship are all of a sudden just immediate, right? Like the hospital, you know, you know how it is, the hospital, you know, like in terms of, you know, our codes of hospitality, especially with kin, 
it's just like wow you know lay out the red carpet even yeah. though the red carpet is like you know what we you know like whoa they're really giving me you know the best that they can offer right and so very humbling when you see especially the conditions that the different conditions that they are living in at the time right and yet you know never met these people before but they treat me like their son yeah it's, a, it's an incredible feeling right um and then discovering you know like again the mixed feelings that you had especially going back for me in 1999 like whoa you know like what a, you know this is the life that could have been you know like or what has happened since then right like to see traces of things to see attitudes that you know like you're not comfortable with right you know confronting if you want to call it your own other right um literally face to face right it's just kind of like this is you know it's like literally you know and i think you've come across the same you know it was very popular at least when i went back in 1999 you know same same but different yeah right? like they would you know like many vietnamese would say that about me when they'd recognize me they'd be like oh because they had seen viet q before right like especially vietnamese that were born in north america and then they come and visited they could easily tell those immediately right they're like oh okay you're you're same same but different but when it came to me because i'm i i held a very kind of like almost liminal kind of position right because i was born in vietnam and you know part of that first wave but raised the second wave uh, of refugee immigrant a lot of the you know like I still embodied a lot of the old traditions, right? I was taught with the, the old traditions. You know, I spoke, and, you know, some words I said had a certain kind of accent to them. Certain, certain, you know, certain actions that I had, I followed up with certain codes of, uh, you know, let's say, um, honor, you know, like honorifics and, you know, like politeness and respect for the elders and all that stuff. You know, like when, you know, when I would, you know, when I would go through those, when I would just, you know, kind of be the person that I was raised to be, right? And all of a sudden, that's when they even realize, well, wait a minute, you're different, right? You're same, same, but different. You do things the right way, like us, but still you have a difference about you, but you still do, you know, you do things that we recognize, right? That was very, that was very kind of gratifying to me, right? In the sense that, oh, you know, like, it's nice that, I felt very gratified that of that sense of recognition that, oh, you know, like there is a part of me that's still here, you know, that is still is linked to here and they're recognizing it. Right. Right. Um, as much as I'm coming in as a complete tourist. In the overall big scheme of, of the Vietnamese history, what is our responsibility or our role, our position in the history and the, future of Vietnam? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I kind of, I, I, I don't know about the royal we, I think about it in terms of, you know, let's say, because I recognize that, you know, I'm coming from a very specific moment of his, in time and space and history of Vietnamese history, um, that, you know, walking forward, and I think about this a lot because of my kids, right and like making sure that they understand where they come from right and 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 again i think trying to be trying to lead by example is basically what my responsibility is i say you know in terms of like okay well here's some, you know again 
being Vietnamese has a very kind of, I don't want to say stigma, but certain assumptions to it, being of a certain age, right? Like, oh, when, when, it, when it becomes illuminated, like, oh, you know, you were born as a result, you know, during the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War has a certain, for a specific generation of people, it has a certain kind of meaning to them, whereas it has very little meaning to other, like younger people. Vietnam War, that's you know, way before my time, right? That's Rambo, right? That type of thing, right? It's way, you know, it's like a video game, right? So part of it is like as as the the memory of the war recedes, right? Like it'll be 50 years in 2025 that, you know, like our world changed, right? That's several gen yeah, that's a couple of generations, right? Part of it is, you know, like and Vietnam celebrates that day, April 30th, differently than the way we do. Right. I know for my parents, it's a, it's a day of great sadness, right? Of things of a day when their lives changed and they had to say goodbye. They had to were forced to say goodbye to, you know, certain things, certain ways of life, certain memories, certain, you know, certain potential lives. Right. Whereas Vietnam, the, you know, the country of Vietnam celebrates it as a day of, you know, newfound identity of independence, right? Of, you know, like, of, you know, and then, and constantly looking forward, right? Like we're, you know, we are, after all this time, 50 years later, look at where we are now. We have Avengers Tower in Saigon type of thing, right? And, you know, we're, you know, like we've got, uh, we're a new economic power, et cetera, et cetera, right? That kind of celebration, right? And I get it, I get it, you know, like, Good for you, right? Uh, you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish, right? But it's more complex than that, right? And that's, and I want to, you know, for me, I guess by leading by example is always making sure that, you know, like at least as much of a full story is told rather than, you know, a monolithic kind of narrative, which is about right. winners and losers. Right. There's just kind of like, no, no, no. I mean, again, for the longest time, and it's one of the interesting things that I think that's happening now is that there's a lot more, especially in popular culture, and like you see it a lot in, in comics, especially in, in memoirs, is that the memories or the memory of, you know, South Vietnam um, has, is starting to articulate itself. Right. This forgotten, you know, like the South Vietnamese army, you know, the veterans, things like that. People, you know, like, again, for the longest time as a result of American movies or, you know, even American history, basically, have, you know, basically laid the blame, you know, to, you know, South Vietnamese forces and the whole of South Vietnam for falling. Right. You know, like, you know, well, you know, it was a corrupt government and useless and, you know, like completely you know, like buckled once the Americans left and all that stuff, right? I mean, like, and there's kind of, as a result, I think for the longest time, and this is, I think has, you know, kind of permeated some of our, you know, at least our parents' generation and certain members of our parents' generation, there's been a sense of shame um, uh, about about the circumstances, right? And, uh, yeah, you definitely. Know, and that's been, it's particularly tough to, to, um, to experience and to see Right. I mean, when, you know, like, um, and so I think those stories, those voices, you know, deserve to be heard and, uh, and healed uh, in many ways. Um, 
to, you know, again, to kind of give that sense of complexity to the larger narrative, the larger Vietnam narrative, right? Because yeah, we, our results, you know, our very being, where we are today is a result of a cataclysmic event at a local level, you know, that changed, you know, our parents' lives, right? And, you know, in a global scale, Right, sure, the Vietnam War, it has its place in geopolitics, Cold War, and everything like that. At the human level, though, we are the, we are the results, you know, we're the results of that. And so, you know, in terms of the future of what, you know, what people like you and I do, well, I totally admire what you're doing. I think you're doing exactly what, you know, um, what, um, you know, I would aspire to do, which is to keep, keep the complexity of voices and stories uh, and questions about identity alive right you're creating a living archive you know uh, you know of uh, recordings of voices of people's experiences of what it means to be you know vietnamese at a, uh, as a result of of living at this particular moment in time and space thank you for for being part of the archive and and being part of this sort of living um work in progress if you will uh i hope to you know today we covered a lot of ground and i think that there's so much more to cover um and in the future i want i've and i've talked to you about this before i would love to have you on um you know in these mini panels that i that i plan to put together with filmmakers um other writers and other creatives in the Vietnamese um, diaspora, uh, and and also within uh, the Vietnamese um, groups in Vietnam um, itself. And um, with, if oh, so, I was gonna say with pleasure, with pleasure. I mean, like, like I barely, I still got tons. <laughs> I still got lots of other things to kind of relate to. I mean, I think. You know, in terms of the things that I've experienced and things that I've observed um, as well that link up to some of the questions that are, ten, you know, like are not only tangential to some of the things that you've asked, but also add and supplement to some of the things that I've said as well. And that I think might, especially in having it in a group situation where, you know, they can, those, those kinds of observations and easily kind of bounce off each other and enhance the conversation as well. Um, I, you know, I'd be extremely honored to, to, to continue this journey with you. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Thank you um, again uh, for coming on today. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to do this again uh, very soon because there's a lot more bullet points that I want to cover, but I think it's going to, I need to shift the narrative um, into a different, you know, I know that when you get, because I've heard the podcast, uh, you were on another podcast that I'd mentioned before, uh, you started to speak about Eisenhower and you went so deep with just that one topic that I know the the intellectual prowess that you're capable of to get and, and drill down into to one topic. So there's still so much to cover in the future about the history of, of Vietnam as as she relates to the the entire world and from your perspective i'd i'd love to get more information and, and build upon this conversation in a few months with pleasure kenneth with pleasure thanks again nick i appreciate it thank you thank you for listening to the vietnamese with kenneth Nguyen. the vietnamese is produced by Brittany tran and javier proenza special thanks to jane win catherine win tina fam sydney jamie and crystal trin Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok 
at the Vietnamese podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park